0: All right, hi, welcome to Rumor Flies. I'm Ryan. I'm Josh. I'm Greg. <laughs> and today we are doing another history episode for season three. We have one every season and we decided to pull in a very special guest for this one. Greg, do you want to introduce him? So yeah, this week
1: uh, we're joined by a fellow dark lord in the uh, Darkness Collective. Um, some of you may know him, uh, Daniele Bolelli. He is a professor and has his degrees in, I believe it's a BA in Anthropology, a graduate degree from UCLA in American Indian Studies, and CSULB in History. He has the Drunken Taoist, he has History on Fire, and a third podcast I'm blanking on, I'm sorry. <laughs>
2: but, um, I'm not doing that one anymore. Ah, okay, I used to that one with uh, Mike Vallely, the skateboarder, a friend of mine, but it was really mainly his podcast and I was helping him out. Gotcha.
1: Well... Either way, um, hopefully all are familiar with him. He has some amazing work out there, some awesome, uh, a nice uh, storied MMA uh, pedigree as well. And I might have heard on Joe Rogan experience, tons of, I can go on and on and on. But um, Danielle, you want to take it from here and uh, touch on some of the more important things I may have gotten wrong or you'd like to emphasize.
2: <laughs> you got them all good. The only thing that Sandy <laughs> podcast listeners cannot enjoy is my glorious good looks that are clearly <laughs> attribute but other than that you know they'll have to be satisfied with my voice we'll be waiting for the tv show <laughs> <laughs> anyway
0: uh so today we are going to be talking about rome and as the long list of daniele's acc- uh, accreditations has shown he knows a lot more than we do So uh, we asked him to come help us, and we're going to go ahead and take a couple topics. Rome is a fascinating subject because it is a, well, it's such a broad range of things that we could possibly cover. Um, I mean, there are several podcasts just specifically on Rome, so we're obviously not going to hit everything. But we got a few heavy hitters that I think everyone is at least familiar with and that um, Daniele can shed some light on with us. So um, anybody want to start off, Greg?
1: Sure, why not? um here so one of the oh that's not the right document sorry there we go you blew it i know that's what i do so one of the common myths we have um there's a lot of myths especially from all the different movie portrayals and different media portrayals and various american history classes and well i guess just history classes in america about gladiators <clears throat> and um one of the big ones is we're gladiators all slaves and a lot of what We were finding on uh, various sites, even History Channel's website had it, but also ancient.eu and BBC, um, was that the majority were, in fact, slaves, former slaves or condemned prisoners. But there was also this kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for, I guess, uh, in contrast, this kind of glorious lifestyle to it, this uh, fame and glory, celeb- uh, celebrity status, uh, despite the high casualties and maybe not so popular origins. But uh, Daniele, what would you say about that as far as the slavery background of gladiators?
2: Well, I mean, the thing in ancient Rome that why this topic is complicated is because on one end, anybody who made a living through their body was seen as lower class. So from prostitutes to actors to anybody who would use their body to entertain an audience in any way shape or form was considered kind of very low class so in that sense it would do a gladiator job not only because of the risks involved but also because of the status that went with it, it was seen as a it's the perfect slave job you know people that you wanna uh, the only redeeming quality to them is to die well in the arena kind of thing and that's true, but then there's also the other side of the story, which is the fact that because gladiatorial game became insanely popular and much like modern sports, the Roman fans started worshiping some individual gladiators and, you know, following them the way you follow some top basketball star or football star or MMA fighter, then it started building a cult of personality around some of the gladiators to the point where, Even aristocratic Roman women and men, for that matter, would want to have sex with them, would uh, follow them around, would (laughs) they became kind of the celebrity of the era. And so at that point, now it started attracting also a whole lot of non-slave people saying, I don't care what anybody say about low status. Clearly, it's low status only to some because on another level, there's a superstar status that you can achieve by becoming a successful gladiator. Did you find?
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: no, so then that's where you have suddenly the fact that not everybody who was a gladiator was a slave, and you actually had people, free people, volunteering to be. Now, some were for economic opportunities because they were free, but they were dirt poor, and being a gladiator was better than nothing. But others also because they bought into the hype of the degree of fame, fortune, and glory that one could achieve in that way.
1: Huh. And I guess, um, did... Are there? I know the, the history of the Roman Empire is very, very long. <clears throat> it's, uh, very, it's almost hard to determine when it really began and ended, really. But um, did that depiction and these backgrounds change much over time? Or do you find most accounts that's kind of, I mean, obviously things change, but that's more or less how gladiatory combat and the Colosseum and arenas went?
2: I think my understanding is that there's a whole debate regarding the origin of gladiatorial combat, but it seems that there's a lot of evidence to indicate that it was something done as a sacrifice in front of graves of uh, important dead people originally, so it has a religious component. It was Mm -hmm. basically, rather than having human sacrifice, you have a gladiatorial fight, they will shed blood and the blood will be offering to the spirit of the dead.
0: Uh, Dad, that definitely adds a little bit of interest to uh, the church services then. <laughs> like, geez.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you can definitely say that. And then I think that's exactly what happens. People started saying, great, there's another funeral to go to. We'll have some cool gladiatorial combat. <laughs> it became sad. Rather than being, you know, religion, it became also entertaining. It became just... Yeah, yeah, I mean, we really have to have somebody dead to have a good gladiatorial combat. Why can't we just have the gladiatorial combat and that's it, you know? So he started breaking away from the religious aspect and getting more into the sport entertainment aspect of it.
0: That's fascinating. I'm trying to picture MMA having a religious aspect to it at some (laughs) point.
2: Right, but basically that's what it is, right? This whole idea of shedding blood for the spirit of the dead, which is something that exists in a bunch of culture, you know, the whole notion. The, Human
0: sacrifice. Yeah, the, I think it was the Aztecs that had that uh, that ceremonial game uh, where they would actually end up uh, the losing team would die. Uh, yep, exactly. So, so that's that's interesting that there's that connection that that far across the globe from each other. Um, I guess everybody I guess gets bored and somebody has to die. But you know, <laughs> uh, there
3: there is one question I did have though. You, you mentioned the the fame and the celebrity uh, and the sport of it. Uh, there was mentions. Uh, different places where I saw that even some of the more famous gladiators uh, might have even had endorsements by whether it be um, you know senators or um, you know whatever maybe is there any any water that 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 holds
2: yeah I mean as the popularity of gladiators grew and they did become not everybody of course but the guys at the top of the game they did become superstars they started making money they started getting the equivalent of modern-day sponsorship they started getting some important political figures having their own gladiatorial school so that they could offer the game, game popularity in the process. Because for them it was, you know, being the editor of the game, being the guy who offers the gladiatorial combat, cost a lot of money. But it also brought you tremendous popularity because the next time there's a political... There's something involving whether an election or something along those lines people would remember. Hey, that's the guy who gave us some awesome gladiatorial shows for the last year. Maybe I'll vote for him. You know, so there were gladiatorial combat became something where politics mixed with economics mixed with entertainment mixed with all of it.
0: That's 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 kind of weird because I don't think we have any like modern day analogs of that where it's all of those rolled into one. Um right. I, I,
1: I guess I guess like companies uh, being like the Allstate Sugar Bowl, right? I mean, you get like, or whatever, you know, the, I guess you kind of see that a little bit, but that's yeah, about you just gotta, I can think of. you
0: just got to get the religion in there at some point. Right. Well, we do have the New Orleans Saints, so maybe that just throws it <laughs> in. Maybe that, that's a technicality. So I guess moving on to the next topic, unless you have anything to add to that, Daniele? No, that's it. Okay, great. So the next topic we're going to talk about is also very closely related with it, and also I'm surprised the movie gladiator never came up in that last I, topic
1: i, I thought was, i felt that it was going to come up eventually we're so. going <laughs> to fix that it's going to come up it's going to
0: come up um so what we're going to talk about is the the thumbs up thumbs down policy and this was most famously uh, portrayed in the movie gladiator 2000 uh ridley scott movie uh russell, russell crow i believe yeah, was the and, uh, and uh, joaquin, joaquin phoenix, phoenix crushed it so in it's obviously a movie about a gladiator and the take home from it is that during the matches if there was a enemy or an opponent that was on the losing side was on the ground and was about to be killed uh the emperor who in this case was emperor commodus uh commodus i don't don't know how to exactly uh do say that one commodus okay we'll go with that one um he would have either his thumb to the side and either go up or down, and if it was down, they'd kill the losing opponent, and then uh, if it was up, then he'd be spared, and he'd be deemed to either be worth more alive, or he was worthy to fight the next day. Um, there's a lot of um, background to this, obviously, and it seems to be—the uh, the, mu- the water seem a bit muddied, um, I guess the one background of why this was portrayed like this in Gladiator was because uh, Ridley Scott saw a painting. It was the, uh, you're going to have to help me on this one again, Daniele, uh, the Police Verso. Uh, yeah. It was, uh, so, yeah. it was an 1872 painting by uh, Jean-Leon Jerome, and it shows a gladiator with a fallen opponent uh, dead at that point, And the entire crowd uh, in the stands with their thumbs down. So, That's what he said really uh, thought captured Rome in all of its like glory and wickedness, I think he said. So I guess we'll go ahead and jump off from there. Daniele, what's your input on the thumbs up, thumbs down issue? Because there's two sides to it from what I saw.
2: There is, in Latin, the way they explain the thumbs up, thumbs down, they say that when the crowd and when the editor of the games wanted to indicate to the winning gladiator what they should do with the defeated opponent, whether to spare him or give him or kind of kill him with giving the coup de grace, they would use an overturned thumb. Now, they don't specify in which direction the thumb was turned. They They don't say anything about if they wanted instead to have him spared, uh, what kind of sign they would use. So the thumb up, thumb down is kind of an invention in the sense that we don't know whether the thumb up was a sign for sparing. It doesn't, that doesn't show up in the sources. There doesn't seem to be any sign for the thumb if you want to spare them. There may be something else going on. Whereas the thumb turned in some direction, unspecified would be for the, um, for the, gladi- the defeated gladiator to be killed. Now, what seems to what many historians seem to believe is that the thumb in any direction would be conceived as a killing, would be the sign for get rid of him. Because basically, the thumb would mimic a sword, and so having the sword kind of drawn out or moving, like, as you move it either downward, upward, or sideways, it would be the sign that you want the um, winning gladiator to use his gladius to kill the opponent. Okay. Whereas, uh, suggest that uh, if you wanted to spit him you would hide your thumb in your hand.
0: The police the- Compresso. I think that's what it's called. Exactly. The, called. the idea yeah.
2: being, you know, the the sword should be sheeted and not used to um, to kill the opponent.
0: Right. Uh so that's one of the ways that I saw that. And I I I'm willing to like give that one a lot of credit because I mean nobody's saying for sure, you know, nobody was there when they saw it and nobody was explicit about the actual, you know, gesture. Rich farmer members. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Sorry. Uh, uh, you did a beverage farm joke, very funny, Greg. Uh, so there was one Roman writer called Decimus Junius Juvenalis uh, or Juvenal, I think, was the <laughs> name that they like to call him by colloquially. And yep. uh, he had one little quote that said, "These men were horn blowers in attendance at every municipal arena, known as trumpeters in every village. Now they present their own spectacles and." To win applause, kill him whoever the mob gives the thumbs up. In quotations, right there, and it's suggesting from this that they meant that thumbs up meant to kill him, and thumbs down meant swords down, throw them down, and then that's it.
2: Uh, that's the, yeah. That's the other theory that instead there was a thumb up, thumb down, but it's the reverse compared to what we think. Okay,
0: so why do you think that uh, a lot of historians kind of discount this guy's? Um, uh, account of this, considering that he was, I guess, a little bit closer to the time than people now. I, I, I get the, uh, the whole benefit of the doubt type of thing. Like you kind of want to be a little bit skeptical just going by one person's account. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But, um, why do you think that this is not completely taken, uh, for face value?
2: I think part of what happened is the painting you mentioned was very popular and the guy who did the painting was renowned for being uh, extremely accurate as, um, you know, he would always try to do some very historically accurate painting. So my guess is that part of his reputation led to many historians not really questioning it, even when it started becoming obvious as the evidence came in that it wasn't really that clear cut the story. Okay,
0: that's fair enough. Um, some little extra tidbits that we have on uh, Emperor Commodus himself. He was, like most emperors, a total dick, but um, he actually uh, participated in lots of gladiatorial matches himself. But obviously he always won since everyone gave in to the emperor. Um, He spared them there, but he also happened to, I I did not know any of this, he was said to kill his sparring partners privately. So as long as nobody was watching him, he would just either kill some random sparring partners, or just kill tons of animals uh, in the arena just to kind of taunt the Senators. One account, he just killed a helpless giraffe, and nobody was really into that except for him. Uh, I don't like getting too into Roman emperors because all of them have a pretty
2: dark streak. Yeah, those guys don't mess around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and
0: all of them seem to have at least a little streak of crazy too for some reason, or at least their opponents like to say that, and it gets recorded in history, and that's how we see him afterwards. Which I guess kind of segues us to the next thing. Do you have anything else to say, Daniele?
2: Well, I think part of the... When you mentioned the movies and the gladiatorial thing, I think what happens with that is that it's... um, Why do we think that all gladiators were slaves according to the movies? Well, because it makes for a more dramatic story. You know, you sympathize more for the poor guy who got thrown into an arena by an evil emperor than you do it for a dude who decided to give up his freedom to become a gladiator because... He can score uh, women and money. You know, it's uh, one thing to have, uh, there's a story built in. The other one is considerably more complicated to build a sympathetic character. So not surprisingly, they've always focused on uh, the slavery aspect of the gladiatorial game because it's more of a classic good versus evil kind of story.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. It takes a, it's a lot easier to just pull the heartstrings from the beginning than to develop a character who may have some uh less than savory intentions to most at first. So that that's that's a very good point. Um I I very much appreciate that little posit on the whole slave thing.
3: Well, I guess the other thing that you can add to it is that, you know, it's a different time nowadays and nobody could actually you know, see themselves volunteering to be a gladiator and put themselves in that position because they want to, because it, it's, you know, you could potentially die. And, you know, I guess most people can't fathom putting yourself in a position to where, you know, you might get some glory, but you also could have your head cut off in front of, you know, thousands of people.
0: Well, you literally give up your freedom. So that's uh, that's uh, another it, thing about that. Like, imagine uh, to, in order to be an NFL player, you have to give up your right to vote uh, to even hold land, any of those things, uh, I don't know if I would do it. I mean, even though there are probably some other perks there. So couple. yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah,
2: and I think what happens is uh, we forget the life in Romo stuff that a lot of people died early life, died early anyway. Yeah, but, uh, you know, lots of people dealt with misery in their own day to day life. So the idea of, you know, you are going to go through some really harsh thing, but you have a chance for major glory in a way that your regular life would never offer you, or you can stick around, play it safe, and play it safe may still be die at 40 of some horrible disease and live in monstrous poverty at the brink of starvation, you know, it's not as uh, crazy as a choice to make.
0: Okay. That- Good point. Uh, it's putting people in the eyes of the Romans at that point. The ones that just usually didn't live too much past 30, if anything. Right. So, uh, Josh, what you got next?
3: So I'm going to be talking about probably one of the more famous depictions of the fall of Rome. And I just want to start off here, Danielli, just getting your opinion. And, and what I'm talking about is the, the famous depiction of Nero playing the fiddle while Rome burned. So you know there there was a a massive fire that that ravaged the city of Rome for six days. It destroyed seventy percent of the city and left you know over half its population homeless so you know one thing that I learned was that you know this saying actually had a double meaning double meaning in that not only did Nero play the fiddle you know while the city burned but he was also. Uh, a pretty terrible leader and didn't really accomplish much for the people and didn't help them out. So that, you know, it's another way of saying that he just idly stood by and did nothing for them. So I I guess my question for you is like, why, you know, why would such a thing, you know, have such credence and stick around for so long and people actually depict him playing the fiddle while, while Rome burned? What was his legacy?
2: Well, I think there's, um, It's always tricky with some of the Roman emperors because the sources we have are often sources that are very hostile to them. Now, were they as crazy as advertised? In many cases, probably. But also we have to remember that often some of these sources come directly from political opponents. So who knows how much of the insane behavior that's attributed to them really happened and how much there is just a political slant of people who want to smear their reputation a generation later. Um, Now, we do know a couple of things, like, Nero clearly was not the most mentally balanced dude in the history of mankind, you know, he did kill his mother, he did do a few things that were like, okay, those are a bit troubling, for sure.
0: (laughs) He had a really Uh, inventive way of killing his mother, though, when I looked up the whole uh, boat with the, like, escape hatch that just dropped her in it there, and then afterwards, she swam the sword and then got killed by an assassin.
2: Yeah. Really roundabout. Yeah, he was trying to make it look like an accident, didn't work, and then went back to the old plan B of just having her stabbed. Yeah. But, um, yeah, all of the Classic. things are, uh, are, It's yeah, so it's kind of tricky in that regard because you read about some of these guys, Caligula, Nero, and so on, and, again, some of it, they probably was a lot that was bizarre and strange, but also, like, for example, the fact that a guy like Caligula was, uh, you know, if you read the historical record about him, he sound completely insane and the worst guy on earth. And yet, then you read stuff about uh, when he died, a lot of people were, like, really sad that he was dead. So clearly, not everybody must have thought that he was completely insane and the worst leader ever, you know what I mean? Oh. So that's where it gets a little tricky in terms of the reputation. But I guess specific to the Nero story, well, one thing that's funny about Nero stood by and played a fiddle, that would have been really difficult to do considering that the fiddle had not been invented yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, we were <laughs> hoping you'd hit that point. Yeah.
2: So that that's a bit of a problem. <laughs> what he would have played, if he had played anything, would have been the liar, which is something that he was very fond of playing. He was this, uh, um, he, he regularly made senators see through his interminable performance plucking the lyre which was considered very scandalous for the Romans because I mentioned earlier, you know, a good aristocratic Roman did not do anything that was twin, you know, being an entertainer was a really low class thing. So for the emperor to publicly perform in music or in plays or stuff like that was just something that horrified aristocratic Romans. And that may have been why, you know, the liar shows up, you know, him playing the instrument shows up as a, as an archetypal image in uh, the way some of the Romans will talk about uh, when Rome was this big fire in Rome and supposedly Nero was playing his liar when all of this was going on. Now the other thing is that some of the other evidence indicate that Nero was not in Rome when the fire broke out, which again make it pretty difficult for him to actually be doing all this stuff when he's not physically there. Um, He did... uh, the implication in some of the sources against him is that he did start the fire. And he had started it because he wanted to get rid of some parts of the town in order to expand his balance and rebuild on it and so on and so forth. That's also kind of unlikely because uh, like Tacitus, for example, was clearly hostile to Nero. He doesn't like him. And yet he does not blame him for the fire. He does not bind to kind of the conspiracy theory of Nero was behind it, and and he's the one who said that he was not in Rome at the time when the fire broke out. Yeah. Against conspiracy, also there's the idea that Nero's own palace uh, was partially destroyed in the fire, which is clearly not what you want to do. You know, if your whole goal is to um, expand, you don't want a lot of your properties to go out in flame if, uh, if your goal is... A grand, you know, to aggrandize. Right.
0: Um, That's working a bit backwards.
2: Yeah, also the fact that the fire started in a very different part of town from where he eventually wanted some land. Now, the fact that support this idea is that afterwards, he did end up taking a bunch of land for himself. So, you know, if you work it backwards, it does fit the conspiracy of, oh, look, that guy... In the, you know, there was this big fire and then he took a bunch of land and he expanded his palace. So it must have been part of a plan all along. Well, not necessarily. It may have been that, um, you know, Rome was a tinderbox anyway. If Somebody dropped the match, the whole thing go up in flames and they did not have a very good system of putting out fires. And so stuff happened and he eventually decided, well, I mean, I might as well make the best of it and take what I can for myself.
0: So the thing I found interesting about that whole – that you said Tacitus was not exactly nice to Nero. Yeah. From what I was looking at, though, it seems like he was the nicest person regardless of not being nice because the three people that wrote about the fire were Tacitus, um, who was about eight years old at the time uh, and actually living in Rome, and then there was also Suetonius and Cassius Dio, and those two were the ones that were showboating the theory that he started the fire – and he did it all for personal gains. But the funny part is, and he, also, and he threw in a little bit of a, um, a flair to it, saying that he was playing a song um, uh, called the uh, Ilias Persis, or the Sack of Troy, which is kind of, um, I guess, uh, appropriate for what he would be doing. And he was all in play clothes and everything. But the thing is that's interesting is that both of those people, uh, Suetonius and Cassius Dio, were not around for the fire. Cassius Dio was born um, 100 years after the fire, and Suetonius was born right. four years after it. Meanwhile, the person that was actually there and had to deal with the backlash of uh, of Nero, if he was this terrible person that burned down Rome, gave him a pass almost. He said that, like, he came down uh, after afterwards and, like, helped with the relief efforts and even offered some of his palaces to the displaced, you know, the refugees, I guess. Um, it's really weird seeing yeah. that. I feel like the most vicious person would have been the person that was there, you know?
2: Yeah, exactly. So it seems to me that Nero was probably not the nicest person ever, but eventually that uh, propaganda against him turned the story even uglier than it really was and built a whole conspiracy around it. Now, part of it has to do with the fact that Nero became uh, one of the most hated people from, from the point of view of early Christians, because one of the things that he did do was to start a persecution against Christians, blaming them for having started the fire. Now, it's entirely unlikely that it was early Christians who intentionally started the fire. But it's entirely likely that Nero decided to shift the attention toward a good scapegoat, which Christians being mostly foreigners into Rome, they were lower class. They were people who were viewed with suspicion by most people in Roman society anyway. So you know, a good persecution against Christians would do him no harm and may just give uh, the populace a good scapegoat to be met with for the fire so that, you know, there's clearly somebody to blame. It's somebody that Nero is taking care of so everybody can be happy. Now, as later Christianity become a big deal in the Roman Empire and eventually become the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, all the sources that were against Um, Nero were the ones that would be copied and kept and whereas any kind of testimony probably positive toward Nero would not have been something that Christian authors would have wanted to preserve because I mean the stuff that he did to, to Christians was pretty awful you know horrendous tortures and some people even argue that Nero is the is the guy they were thinking of when they were thinking of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation? Oh, the, what that part of the Bible is about is about because of his persecutions against Christians.
0: Okay, that would make a lot of sense. I mean, that seems to be the one person that I would peg as being the Antichrist there, so <laughs> um. All right. Uh, Anything else before we... Yeah, um, I was going to say, this is just kind of a little side meta. I'll try not to get too tangent
1: here. But um, this is one of those topics I always find really interesting. Um, I I studied history as well in undergrad, obviously not to the same degree you did. Um, But this is one of those great examples of where when you start discussing the topic about what happened, you start arguing like, oh, did this happen? Did it not? And it slowly always becomes a discussion of just the sources themselves and how not even unreliability, but you have to put... There's so much contextualization that's required to even start having the conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's like you see this a ton when like if you're studying Anglo-Saxon history, it's all like two centuries later religious accounts, right? And same with this. It's like we have Tacitus who was a kid when it happened and then two other sources who weren't there later. It's just... It's just I, don't know, I just find that stuff fascinating because it really kind of, as we always like to say, kind of gets to the heart of what we're talking about where it's not quite... Even the source itself is not exactly a game of telephone, but it's this starts mm-hmm. getting these questions of historical memory. It starts getting into historiography, just at its essence, and just the uh, when you really have to double back on your sources and understand what you're even looking at. I
2: don't know. I just find that
1: fascinating. Yeah, I saw that, Ryan.
2: <laughs> no, but the problem with history is that it's uh, there's a lot. Like if you only go by the facts that we absolutely know for sure the history books would be about five pages long you know, because history is speculation based on incomplete evidence. Yeah.
1: History's interpretation, right? I mean, yeah. Anyway. So we can uh, move on. I just wanted to have my little side.
3: Yeah, and and that makes a nice segue, you know, talking about the Nero with persecuting Christians and everything, and how Christianity became the dominant religion, uh, you know, of, of the Roman Empire. And it leads me to Rome falling in a day, because there's two major theories as to why people believe that Rome fell so quickly. And one of them is that, Actually, Christianity was the cause of it because it did take um, that turn—that turn the other cheek mentality—and it, and it caused the Roman citizens to not be as hungry and to aspire for you know more land and more wealth and things like that. Uh, but the other main uh, theory that people have is that you know some of the uh, the barbarians from you know the the north and the west came in um, from you know whether it be from Germany or uh, some other countrysides over there and they just completely ransacked the city because it was rotting from within and um I, you know I, I just want to know like what would you say would be you know one of the the main reasons that Rome fell so quickly?
2: Well, I think one of the arcs that you see in uh, it's a classic theme in some historians argue that it's true Uh, there's a classic arc of civilizations where you go from uh, having a hard time being tough as hell because you have a rough life and as such then you just go out kick ass left and right conquer become this the fearsome person on the block until you don't need to be the most fearsome person on the block now. Because now you want to enjoy life. And so you, why should I go out and fight these wars constantly? Why don't I send somebody else fight the wars for me while I stay home. And enjoy the easy life. And then that success in a way breeds uh, compliance. And it makes you soft ultimately. Which is kind of I mean there's it's almost stereotypical to some degree. But you also see some levels of truth in it. It's like. Even if you look at modern-day fighters who, by definition, have a rough job and they have to be hungry in order to perform at their best. When you get too satisfied, when you have it too easy, then it's something that most people seem not to handle well. Definitely, you know, to be able to, when you have 20 gazillion other people who are aiming for your spot, who want what you have, and they are working day and night to get it. And you decide, well, I have it. I mean, sure, I want to keep it. But you don't have quite the same drive as somebody who, want, who has nothing and wants it for the first time. So you don't put in quite as much hard work. And then regularly then that one will fall. The new hungry one come to the top. They become the king. They have start enjoying the easy life. They start locking off, they get knocked off the pedestal, and the game keeps repeating itself. One of the arguments is that that's kind of what happened with Roman civilization as it happens with most civilizations is too many centuries of having it too easy made the, the Rome uh, suddenly, you know, what had been the dominant military power in the area suddenly became weak and more vulnerable. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, uh, that that's what I f- thought was interesting too, is how... Um... You know, not only did their complacency absolutely just, you know, be one of the main reasons that they fell. One of the things that I thought might have been from the other side of that, that they were so hungry and expanding, you know, the Roman Empire and conquering the world and everything like that they got too big too quickly. They spread themselves too thin. Right. And I mean, would you also say that that could also potentially be another um, factor into why, you know, this, you know, it, it seems like the empire rotted from within out. And that's, and and that's the biggest thing I took from it.
0: Well, it also seems that as you expand more and, you know, dominate more cultures and more civilizations that are not originally you, you're also kind of diluting the Roman pool and Rome becomes this more viscous thing that, um, The culture it starts dying a little bit and less people start caring about because it's a bigger empire But it's not exactly the same empire anymore because even though it conquers it still absorbs So it has this thing where you know, it gets defeated because it's not really itself anymore, right?
2: Yeah, of course and you're gonna have fractures because loyal. the reality is that you cannot have loyalty to an abstract entity that doesn't you know loyalty is a lot easier to have with somebody that you see face to face with Uh, that's why, you know, tribes make sense to human beings, because these are people you live with, these are people you know. The bigger you get, the harder it is to emphasize this concept of loyalty that's supposed to override the loyalty to what's immediately around the places where you live. Uh, When an empire gets too big, you inevitably have a ton of people who want out, who don't want to be absorbed into this giant entity, because they feel it, it doesn't mean anything to them, which is why, you know, when the Soviet Union fell, there was the rush of a zillion people to get out. They wanted their independence back, they wanted their smaller state, their ethnic group, that kind of stuff.
0: I guess to get to the heart of this, uh, what would you consider to be, if you had to pick that day that Rome fell, even though that's clearly not the case? It was a slow burn. And obviously, there was the uh, Byzantine Empire that still, you know, proceeded afterwards. Uh, what would you put as being that day that people would say was the one that Rome fell, even if it's just the city or anything like
2: that? Well, I mean, I think, again, it's hard because it's a constant process. I mean, in some way you can make the argument that even as Rome was expanding during the empire, the seeds of its fall were already there and it was just playing out. Um, But of course, when you start getting invaded and sacked and stuff like that, you know, by the 300s, when you have uh, the sack of Rome at the end of the 300s, when you have that's when, you know, for anybody who didn't get the memo in the previous decades, it become pretty obvious that you're no longer the top military power and that any barbarian who feel like showing up and sucking the city can afford to do so. That's a pretty clear sign that the gig, that the gig is up in the West.
0: Right. Man, so it wasn't it. it where could this term have really come from, if anything? Then,
3: Well, I, I, I'm not really sure about that. But I mean, one of the things back to your point, Daniele, is that, you know, a lot of these uh, barbaric tribes that were on, you know, on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, they didn't even want to conquer it. They just wanted to be absorbed into it and be a part of it. But the the fact that a lot of these emperors just pretty much, you know, stuck their nose up at them and said, you know, we don't need you. You know, we're fine with who we are. You know, you need us and, you know, you know, things like that. That is, you know, one of the driving forces that led these these barbarian tribes to actually invade Rome itself.
2: Sure. Absolutely.
1: I was going to say, Ryan, is um, kind of and correct me on this one if I'm wrong, um, Daniele. But my understanding of how this Rome fell moment, just the idea of the fall, this very dramatic collapse mm-hmm. um really stems from an older just kind of decades old um way of american history where great men theory and these movements and it kind of boils down to we we all kind of have this abstract idea of the dark ages which even now is kind of being challenged um the yeah. idea that you know there was this illiteracy and and everything went backwards and it's always seemed as that like you had the fall of Rome, the beginning of the dark ages in your middle, your medieval times, and eventually the Italian Renaissance, which made everything perfect. Right. And that's kind of this, this, this vast theory we've always taught people from a young age. That even we got to some degree when we were in school. And I think that's kind of where the idea comes from. Like you're asking, like, why do they say this? I really think it boils down to that.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'll take that answer. Y'all both know better than me. (laughs) Um, He
1: didn't say I was, uh, he didn't say I was dead wrong. So I'll
3: take it.
0: Um, so I guess that is a uh, jealous Josh. Do you have something else to add? To no, that? no. So I guess that's a little bit of a, uh, the Rome fell in a nutshell type of deal, <laughs> but what we're going to go ahead and do is to just, it got pretty heavy towards the end. We, we there was a lot of deaths in this one. Um, and a lot of <laughs> conquering, uh, I think we're just going to wrap it up real quick with a nice little, uh, quick little factoid that is completely wrong and uh needs to be cleared up a little bit and that's the idea that uh danielle a lot of people i've even heard this recently is that a lot of people say that romans when their arenas in their age of decadence and lead poisoning and everything that they did and you know uh air got poisoning all those things they also had a little deal where they like to binge eat and then throw up in something called a vomitorium um yeah you want to clear that one up a tiny bit
2: well, I usually tend to stay away from people throwing up, so maybe I'll uh, let <laughs> you take that one.
0: Okay, well, uh, so the deal is with the vomitorium is that it actually is a, it's it, say you're in an actual stadium today, that little hallway under the stairs where people enter and exit, and just it's kind of a way for their you know, passenger flow, that is the vomitorium, because uh, it comes from the term, uh, the... I don't think it's vomit. We both took Latin, but we don't remember this. Do we I know the root word of vomit is to pretty much expel forth. So it's just a way for people to easily get in and get out of the place after the actual, uh, whatever the event is in the arena. But somehow people just like to take that word vomit and assume that they were just binge eaters. So, uh, that was something that I found. Uh, I, I just wanted to get to that one. I needed to get to that one during this entire episode. I wouldn't have felt right if I hadn't got it off my chest because this is the one that I've heard the most. Unfortunately, oh, the Romans did it. Well, it's always been like it's always been like a
1: symbol of their decadence and goes back to this idea of the fall and softness. This idea of you know, decad. There's always that moral component to the fall of Rome, and I think the vomitorium kind of played into
2: that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. That's a yeah. good point.
2: Well, anyway, and I think oh, go ahead, please, be- because. You got this image, again, the, as you're hinting about the moral component. You got the criticism of the excesses of the nobility. And so that it's that story, right? These guys were not just eating because they are hungry. They are not even eating due to pleasure. They are eating to a level that's completely obsessive and compulsive so as to make themselves sick so that then they can start eating again. You know, that's almost the stereotype. It's like a cartoon, right? That's... Uh, uh, that fits, if you want, that story of just uh, moral decadence that would be in that.
1: Well, The Hunger Games kind of makes fun of that. It does that, right? In the well, movie.
0: It really shows that Rome has had like every trope, either hardened military or completely soft people that just are in a life of decadence. And um, people seem to be OK with flowing through those different types of uh, archetypes of Rome. And yeah. it's really because it just, it lasted for a while and it probably did hit all those points, but somehow it just meshes into this one empire that everybody has in their mind when it really was not that. So, um, uh, anyway, uh, before we go, any closing statements, Daniele?
2: I think that's the gig. Awesome. you uh, want to check out History on Fire, that would be sweet.
0: Oh, that'd be great. Yes. Please check out History on Fire. He has, uh, you have a couple of topics on Rome, um, the slave revolts, right?
2: Yeah, I did the slave revolts uh, in ancient Rome, which was um, I did the first two episodes actually. of whole history on fire were about that. That was a lot of fun. I'm gonna do probably a lot more as time goes by because there's so many good stories associated with Rome. But um, yeah, that's those are the ones I've done so far.
0: And for the less history inclined, there's also the drunken Taoist, which is a. Uh whole plethora of things that you, co- you cover all the time it's a uh, new every episode no uh, underlying theme or I'm, unless I'm missing something it's just about enjoying life pretty much
2: right yeah I mean it kind of has the Rogan podcast kind of gig of like you talk about whatever right you know guests vary they are all over the place topics vary it's uh, more of a talk show than anything
0: that's awesome so, so check where, both of
1: those yeah, out so where, where give a quick rattle off where can people find you
2: I think by now, anybody who is not completely hated by the gods of Google, as long as they spell (laughs) my name right in Google, they will find whatever they need to find, you know, podcasts, books, uh, anything, you know, usually the first page of Google is your friend on that.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Daniele, and um, we will see you again uh, some other time, and uh, once again, uh i'm ryan i'm josh i'm greg bye this episode's closing song is world outside ourselves by IUA. that's a-i-u-a and it's also josh and i's band from a very very long time ago so enjoy